Every time, Katie, I dream in your bed, I wake up with aches I never knew before. Every time, Katie, we stir up the dead, I want you just a little bit more. Thought I heard you say my name, thought I heard it faintly. Every time, Katie, I'm hanging by thread, it seems to be quite often lately. Every time, Katie, I drive to your house, I get lost in the neighborhood. Every time, Katie, the fire gets doused, I run off to gather more wood. Sometimes I think that there's no point in wondering what could be. Every time, Katie, you wear that blouse, hanging fruit on a poisonous tree. It's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. We met with David Wax and Suze Slezak in a different part of Concord, Massachusetts, where we talked with them fittingly in a guest house where they were staying with their own family of four. They are on a 10-city tour as a duo, humming along the way with new creations of melodies and lyrics, while at the same time teaching their kids a thing or two about language, culture, and the road. David Wax Museum will both soothe and surprise you with meditative harmonies and often unexpected but pleasant repetitive lines and hooks. It is an anthropological journey into their own Mexo-American connection. While on the road as a two-piece, those familiar with them may consider them a five-piece band, but spoiler alert, the upcoming touring show seems to be expanding to a seven-piece in a town near you soon. You might get lucky and even hear them while you are blindfolded for a new experience altogether. Perhaps you should blindfold yourself right now, provided you are not driving or operating any machinery, and listen to our conversation with David Wax Museum, recorded at a beautiful guest house in Concord, Massachusetts. I just have a little more me in my ears. Yes. <laughs> me in my ears. This is not, not going to happen, though. Anything like, you know. I you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know, I guess. I had a glass of wine at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, does someone have a phone? Will you just take one little snap of this to send the people whose home this is? Yeah, of Because they will think this is awesome. I'm wondering if I know them. What are their names? Patrick and Maeve McQuinney. Are they originally from Concord? No. Because I grew no. up in Concord. I, they're not originals. Yes, but this is an awesome house. It's so funny, too, because... I drive by this house every day, mm. picking up my daughter from school. Mm-hmm. I literally remember driving by this one and and the next one, the pillars mm. right there. The gorgeous houses, mm-hmm. and it's right in right in Concord Center. It's like beautiful. I know. We it's just walked awesome. Downtown yesterday. Yeah, just being able to walk downtown. But you guys live in Virginia, Virginia, Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. You went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Are you fr- originally from Boston? No, I'm from Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri. And how about yourself? Charlotte from Charlottesville. From Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Okay. So oh, well, then we, we don't know. We don't talk to people who aren't from Boston. 
Oh, so we, we started just, the band in Boston. So, we should so just, it's, we should it's, really, it's, it's legit. It's okay. legit. Well, it's, it's more connected <laughs> we both went to school others. here. Uh, Masuz was in Boston on and off for over a decade. It still, I guess, feels like the home base of the band, even though we haven't been here in a long time. So it's college, a college connection to Boston. And that's where you it's met? In, we met after we both had graduated yeah. and both had left Boston and then we both moved back here. And, and why'd you move back here? I was um, in a relationship at the time and uh, the woman I was dating uh, decided to go to grad school here. Okay. So we moved back. And were you a musician at the time when you moved back? Not professionally. Playing music since I was 10 and writing songs since I was 13. So I'd been, been just part of what I did most of my life. But when I lived in Boston as a Harvard student, I did not play much music at all. Um, I was just so focused on my studies. What was your major there? History and literature. Yeah, I read as a history major. Right on. I did uh, focus on Latin America. And so then went to Mexico after I graduated on a fellowship to study folk music. Huh. And so it was during that year that I started kind of stewing on this idea and thinking about coming back to the States and getting a band started and doing something that combined the Mexican and American music that I was interested in. What was your fantasy band at that point? In terms of the... Like, what did it look like? Or line, what was the lineup like? It was like a, a beautiful woman singing harmonies. <laughs> and God, it all came true. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, I don't... It didn't, I didn't have, a, like, an idea, you Did know? you busk while you were here? Yeah, I, I played in the subways uh, when I got back. I just, like, did the open mic circuit. When I came back to Boston in 2007, I was just like, all right, I'm just doing music full-time. I had money left over from this fellowship, so I knew I could live on that for a little while. And I just, like... You know, every waking moment was just kind of trying to get something pushed further with a song or with booking a gig. Well, it was just it was just you though. You were just a solo guy. Yeah, but I didn't want to play solo. I would go to the open mics by myself, but my idea was always I was going to try to find people to play with. I never really enjoyed the whole like singer songwriter one guy with his guitar thing. Right. You got involved with Latin American studies, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, did you discover that love of Mexican American of music style while you were there? <laughs> Or did you go out there thinking that the music was in you, that the Latin American music was in you to begin with? I guess there are a couple of ways to answer that question. Because I do feel like there's some part of it that is like, you know, you find a music style and when you start singing in it and playing in it, you feel like there's some part of yourself that you're expressing that feels like, I couldn't express that in my own language or I couldn't express that in these styles mm-hmm. of music that I grew up with. So in some sense, when you're like, I guess when you said that, I was thinking, oh yeah, there's something about it that resonated with me pretty deeply. You know, I got introduced to Latin folk music through the Buena Vista Social Club record, like I think a mm. lot of people, and so mm. got interested in Cuban Zone, and I was interested in speaking Spanish, learning those songs. I went to college for my first two years in California at a small place called Deep Springs College. It was there where, I don't know, I started to value myself as a musician in a different way. I was just living in a very small community, just 26 students, very isolated, and so you kind of like have to provide all your own entertainment. And my first summer, after that freshman year of college, I went to Mexico just to do volunteer work, but I was placed with a family of musicians. And so that's when oh, I first cool. got introduced to Mexican folk music. That's some serious immersion. I mean, it was a place where this particular style of Mexican folk music called son Huasteco or Wapango music is really thriving in this little tiny town in Mexico, about eight hours north of Mexico City. It's the guys that are traveling around playing in the cantinas. They'll walk into a restaurant and this trio will play this music. And yeah, then yeah. now it's become a thing where every Sunday they're playing and hundreds of people come out to dance. So it's a pretty thriving scene. So I heard this music 
fell in love with the music, got interested in the culture, just a lot of seeds got planted then. So then I, I go back to California to Deep Springs College, and we had just hired a professor who was an anthropologist who had spent most of his career in Mexico and studying the Mayan in Chiapas. In the process, he'd learned hundreds of folk songs. You know, I have this great mentor that then all of a sudden I was like, all right, I'll just, let's just learn songs. And that's, and so we just would hang out and he would teach me songs and, and kind of fed all this interest I had in the Zapatistas and trying to just understand the experience I'd had. So then I go back down to Mexico the next summer, and now I'm this blue-eyed gringo that shows up and I know a hundred Mexican folk songs. And so it was a different kind of way of connecting with people. And there's a sense of like, oh yeah, this guy gets it and respects the music. Once you've done that legwork, people take you seriously in a different kind of way. So you learn the language is one thing, but if you get the culture. Real ethnomusicologists, a lot of them will shun what I did. You know, to like me to like try to learn to play the music. They're kind of like, then I'm interfering with it or interacting with it or changing it. But I went there as a musician. I didn't uh, have any training in terms of, you know, an anthropological way. It was just like, I love this music. It's connecting with me in some way. I love the way that it allows me to interact with people in this culture. And yeah, screw them. <laughs> I think you did exactly what you should have done. I think that's awesome. I and mean, it, it kind of connects all the dots right there for you. Yeah, you had no for, agenda. Especially for an American to go into a different country, albeit an attached one. You know, right, where we should be much more educated on our Mexican neighbors than all of us are. To go there and know their songs, that's probably an anomaly rather than the norm, right? Most American musicians won't know their traditional folk songs. You must have impressed I mean, the hell out of them down when you got down there. It was funny because sometimes there was a there was a moment when I was te- I would teach groups of kids these songs in the villages I was living in, and some friends from Mexico City came once and they saw me kind of leading this like little choir of kids, and I had taught them the wrong way to sing some song. Or my Spanish was still not very good. And so they were like to hear them like these kids learning some traditional Mexican folk song incorrectly. Yeah. <laughs> you destroyed a whole you destroyed a whole culture in ten minutes. Right. <laughs> Have you as a duo or as a band come back ever full circle to that community as David Wax Museum? Not yet. I think yeah. it's in definitely intend to do that and yeah. perhaps as a family. Yeah. Our daughter's really interested in learning Spanish. She's four. In bedtime tonight, she said, Mom, I want to learn all the languages in the world. Give her. So I can go to any place and talk to anyone. She she's, said that to me. she's smarter than me already. So, let's, let's start with Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got a great idea. Um, so you went to Wellesley. And studied anthropology. I studied anthropology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. See, look at uh-huh. this. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was an anthropology major myself. I thought, I thought, I was thinking that just the way you were asking those questions. You were cultural anthropology I, studies? I or suppose did you so. Do? Cultural, yes. But you were a musician when you got to school? Yeah, I grew up in a family that played a lot of music and we sang a lot and both my parents really valued it and pushed us pretty hard <laughs> into playing and singing. Classical instruments or? Yes, we did um, study piano and violin. We I each had to choose two instruments. Or we had all had to start on piano and then choose one other instrument. We were part of a pretty thriving old-time music community in Virginia. So I also grew up learning those old-time tunes. Did you go to those um, those festivals, those fiddle festivals? I did. And do all that? I did. So yeah. much fun. As I mean, as a kid, it's going to music festivals incredible because you have this total freedom, yeah. you know, and you're camping and. And it seems to complement the Mexican American style. Mexo Americana. Mexo. It's sort of this sort of word that we came up with, or someone came up with, and we thought we can say that's what we do, and it's really stuck. And that's been a way to sort of put some little frame or box around what we're doing. Yeah, because when you came back, you guys met and you started making music together I, I don't know that whole history i'm curious more about well, that's it. what yeah. i was asking like when after you graduated from wellesley uh-huh. how soon after that did you meet david maybe four years so were you playing music on a regular basis 
between so I, then? Let's or? See, so I graduated. I didn't really play a lot in college. I was in part of a group called the Fiddleheads. I, I was hanging out with my college friend tonight, and she was reminding me about that. There weren't a lot of musicians at Wellesley, so I sort of stuck out as you know the girl who would sit on the roof playing the fiddle or fiddle on the roof. I guess you might say. <laughs> well, I don't know. I knew you were going to say that. I, I knew had that was coming. rooftop deck. I didn't. I wasn't fishing. For That's that, cool. But, um, <laughs> in the feminist co-op that I lived my senior year, I also got a fellowship after college to travel, and I was studying textiles, was studying spinning of natural fibers. So I went around the world doing that. But picked up a fiddle halfway through because I just felt like it's a really great way to meet people and connect with people. And similarly, when I I was back in Virginia for a while and then moved back to Boston. And once I got here, I thought, if I want to make friends, I've got to go to jams. And so I had moved back to Boston, was working at McLean Hospital, sort of playing out to jams and bluegrass jams and old time jams around the city. And I'd sort of joined two other bands and was starting to play out and really loving that. David moved back from Mexico and said, I want to find bandmates. And one thing he had done, which was not a fruitful process, but he had made these big, giant photocopied posters saying, do you play the... And then he listed like every instrument you can think of. Hmm. Jawbone? The Jawbone one of them? That wasn't one of them yet, but... So see. <laughs> Should have been. And then he's like, if so, email me at... Check out um, my MySpace, MySpace page. MySpace page, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that didn't work for him. He posted them all around the city. But um, So this friend said, oh, I know this woman who plays the fiddle and sings. And so he contacted me and we started emailed back and forth and the first time we met he was hosting his own house concert in his own living room with some guys he had met i went to that show didn't feel that impressed by the music (laughs) but he was kind of interested in singing together so i said okay i'll get together and sing and and we did that and that felt like a lot of fun so we continued doing that and he asked if i'd join his band and i said i'm already in two bands and i you know have a full-time job but all right well you know i can (laughs) i will i will because three bands you know that yeah, felt good, pretty that's good. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. More bands than Mary. Um, was that David Wax Museum at the time? Yeah, right. it was. Sort of that the was the first rendition of it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know when we started using that name. Maybe already the first pretty gig in November. On. I think. Like one of those I first. I think, I think there was the, another yeah, name. Yeah, I think just, yeah, I think after that first concert, there was probably nothing, the one that, that you came to. And then everything after that, we started. Mm-hmm. So it was me and Suze and this incredible dobro mandolin player that I'd met at the Cantab, this guy Jiro Kukubu from Japan, played with us the first couple of years. And uh, Jack McGrath played bass with us. So that was the f- the first iteration was the four of us. So yeah, our first like real gig is the David Wax Museum, me and Suze was at the lily pad so you, you played in a band first you harmonized first you wrote together and then at some point you started dating and then you got married something like that that's like us chuck we just started doing the podcast together <laughs> not really well it's nothing know. like us as a matter of fact but you first you first did the podcast and then became friends no, we were friends. We're not first. friends yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> no, we were in a band together. And we started the podcast. And we started the podcast. Nice. Yeah, it's very similar to your story. Yes, come on, yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah. this is an American story. I guess so. Yeah, it's all American. It's love American style, really, is what it is. Late, you've had many reasons to cry. I could sing you the saddest song But it would be a mouse To the bull That is the sadness Barreling through your house 
So can I talk about music a little bit? A little bit. I really enjoy music, and I think that a lot of it's meditative. I say that because I I ride the train to work every day. I listen to music a lot. There's some trance-like vibe that I get in some of your songs. Tunes like um, Wheelbarrow Baby and Every Time Katie. There's something about them that, you know, you don't have a typical verse-chorus, verse-chorus, bridge, verse-chorus, which is what I like about your tunes. And I wanted you to talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit because, Shame. you know, there's some unexpected stuff that happens. And it's, it's subtle sometimes, but there's some mm-hmm. unexpected things that you don't hear a lot of songwriters do. I like getting surprised by some of that. Yeah, I hear that. I think that's a cool way to put it. I I guess sometimes my instinct is a pretty traditional structure. Um, And I think that it's been in working with Suze and with the other musicians in the band and being in the studio where I think I've been challenged in really good ways to kind of deconstruct the songs and really questioned, you know, whether that structure that we kind of fall back on intuitively because it's just like there's some part where you can kind of go into automatic pilot and just trust like as you're writing a song that okay then you know that this is going to go next and and so kind of stopping and trying to question that those intuitions and i think that what's been cool in the studio experiences is like really slash and burning and kind of going like does this really add anything to go back to the chorus here or does it really and sometimes i'll write a song that'll be tons of verses and Suze will slash a bunch of them like really this is the only one that is really drawing me in Hmm. why don't we just keep repeating that and kind of build off of that and then kind of you know think about the next time we approach it what's going to be different and change and keep repeating some of those some of those lines Mm -hmm. yeah i have a simple request hope it's not an imposition hope it's not an imposition i have a simple request concerning your house for guests and me i'm in a time of transition i have a simple request hope it's not an imposition Sleeping in dingy rooms, sleeping in dingy rooms. I've been living out of a suitcase. I've never lived in LA, but I've always wanted to. I've never lived in LA, but I've always wanted to. Can I stay in your guest house? Will you let me stay in your guest house? I won't get in the way, I'll be quiet as a mouse. No music after me. that repetition is David's use of Mexican song structure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give an example of that? Sure. I guess the sort of well, ABBA. I mean, in Guest House, you use that mm-hmm. a lot, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 So it's a way that the verses kind of are folded over on each other. Right. Coming out of the blue, sometimes it's hard. I have a simple request. Hope it's not in position. Hope it's not in position. I have a simple request. Concern right. your house for guests. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try my transition. Phrases. And then you go back to the, yeah, and then you go back to the top again to the AB part. And so it has a really interesting effect on the brain. And I think as I was learning these folk songs, I got a book of all these verses and I was trying to learn them and it's just like a couplet and then all of a sudden you hear these the way they're singing it and and they're these incredible repetitions it gives you a chance to say something say something else and then when you go back to the first thing you said you have to see it through a different lens and so it's been really fruitful as a songwriter to borrow that technique it's basically a b b a 
Then there's C, D, yeah. and then you come back to A, B. So when you say the A and B line again, it has a new twist. But it's but the re- the repetition, it, it is different. I don't know what it does to the brain, but I but I know it's happening. Because mm-hmm. you're not just saying the same two lines in the same sequence. You're switching them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it does. While it's repetition, it doesn't strike me as being repetitive. Yeah. You know you what know, I mean? I, I was noticing the other day when you're talking to little kids, I always repeat everything I say twice. But I think there is something about our I'm I'm hypothesis that there's something about our brains that of course you learn through repetition so it's this beautiful way that through this singing maybe because it was an oral tradition mm-hmm. it's a way that anyone can learn it because you know it's going to repeat and it's like a way mm-hmm. of learning and a way of and it's a way communicating. that it's a call and response music and so if you're staying next to someone at a fandango and they're singing it gives you a chance to hear it in a different way so you can repeat it back i think also it has a tribal feel in that. These aren't just melodies that are catchy. You have some great hooks and nice melodies, but it's the lyrics themselves that are the hook or that you strive to hear again in that A-B. Mm-hmm. You know, in that lavender tune? Mm-hmm. I like the lavender tune because it's... I like that way put the lavender <laughs> tune. <laughs> What's it called? Lavender Street. Yeah. No, that's yeah. not... Yeah. I don't know. We, we know what you mean. We know what you yeah, mean. I was yeah. totally... <laughs> it's interesting because I think that there is... that They're kind of both things working in the band and maybe in some songs they come together, but I am drawn to writing slow meditative music, and I am drawn to super rhythmic syncopated dance music. And I feel like there are times when it, when some elements of both those things come together that I think you know interesting things happen musically, or where we have like a real meditative song like "Big Heart of Yours," which is so repetitive, the music doesn't change very much. But then there are these like these Mexican rhythms on this big wapangera that I start overlaying against it and kind of cutting against it. And I think that hopefully that's what I feel like there are times where sometimes it's consciously we're trying to do that. And sometimes it's just these happy accidents because I start a producer's like, okay, well, pick up one of your Mexican instruments and start playing along and see what happens. We have this kind of starting point of like, all right, the band is interested in exploring these two different musical styles and seeing where they can kind of intersect and bounce off each other and, and there can be an interplay. And so different people we've worked with in the band and as producers have kind of responded to different aspects of what we're doing there. And at different moments in our own kind of musical exploration, you know, we're kind of like, all right, let's, you know, take a Mexican folk song and then let's just like play it like a rock song, you know, in the way that I think, you know, like was paved before by La Bamba, you know, or something like that. It wasn't like we invented that, but we're kind of doing it from a very different perspective, not as Latinos or Chicanos. Like we don't have that in our heritage. We just love the music and I've spent enough time with it studying it. So Or play sort of a more generic ballad, American ballad, but on the Mexican instruments and see what what happens yeah. then. When you bring up about the rhythm, there was one song, Harder Before It Gets Easier. Mm-hmm. The drums that it starts with, I'm like, it sounds so familiar. And I looked, and I'm a Radiohead, I, mean, I like Radiohead a lot, mm-hmm. and, there's a, and there's a Radiohead song called um, 15 Step. It's off of In Rainbows. Mm-hmm. It's not the exact same thing. It's, yep. it's similar. Is that a standard Mexican rhythm that I just don't know, or is that something that... It's a little variation off a traditional Mexican rhythm. Okay, interesting. So what, that's probably maybe the way they got it, it go? or something. Yeah. And it's like, if I can remember, thing. it's like... Something like that. It's... Yeah. it's You've been sobbing so hard you can barely breathe. You've been sobbing so hard you can barely breathe. You've been stitching your heart on the outside of your sleeve You've been stitching your heart on the outside of your sleeve You 
But the way that it comes off on the record is a little different. It was like I was playing that rhythm on electric guitar, so the way that the producer and the drummer heard it was a little different. And so there's a little bit more of a swing to it. And then it was kind of like, okay, this is a little weird. This is not what I intended. But then we were kind of like, well, this is interesting. This is... Happy accident. You know, though, yeah. yeah, it's like we're all responding to it in the studio and feeling jazzed up about it. So let's trust what's going on here. You know, when I played that song for one of my teachers in Mexico, it didn't sound like a, a traditional song calentano rhythm to him. It had been changed so much that he was like, that's interesting. That's your own weird thing, you know. Yeah. But That's Mexo. Yeah. Mexo-Americana. Mexo-Americana. As a songwriter myself... I've asked my drummers, not recently, but I'd say, can you send me, come up with a cool rhythm? Because otherwise I, I'm stuck in that mm-hmm. whatever rhythm mm-hmm. I'm in my head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they can give me something really interesting and off kilter mm-hmm. to write to, it can really kind of open doors. Oh, for yeah. You. That's what this whole thing I feel like has been is just like, just these creative starting points that the Mexican music and these rhythms have given me has allowed me to, I think, escape certain traps I would have found myself in as a songwriter. Just to have a totally different starting point where all of a sudden, Sue's heard me playing the early version of Guest House, you know, and it was just like, I'm playing this Mexican folk song that I love and I'm just kind of singing about my life and like, I just want a guest house in LA, but I'm just singing over these chords. And it's like, I don't know, there could be something about that song that could be a little twee or something. Then all of a sudden this rhythm is kind of like, there's just a certain kind of energy that that rhythm is giving me. And so I'm going to sing in a different way. And then I'm using these, when Sue's heard me doing that and, and it jumped out to her and she's like, keep going, whatever you're doing, like keep improvising, like keep going down that route. I wouldn't have gotten there otherwise. I want to understand that dynamic a little bit with both of you guys, because you, you primarily do a lot of the writing. And it sounds like you almost have some producer chops that are just in you. Is that right? I mean, do you guys ir- yeah, or arrangements I, I put, or something like that? I never like think that? of it as the producer role, but I guess as sort of the editor. He just um, has gotten to that place where most of us try to get to of no filter, no um, critic on your shoulder, just like letting it all out, mm-hmm. riffing and, you know, the ultimate babble just as a kid learning to talk is doing. You're just like trying out every sound. I'll be, you know, doing whatever I'm doing, a little project downstairs or something, and I'll just have like half of my brain tuned in because you're all men here, but there's a certain part of a woman's brain that is always listening. You can't not listen. You can't tune it out. I cannot tune it out and just focus on the task at hand. I've noticed that a lot of men in my life can do that. I can't not have a little bit of consciousness to what he's doing upstairs. Sorry, honey, I'm always listening in. That's great. That's what I want. This is behind behind the scenes of David Wax Museum right here. But it just means when I do hear a certain riff that I think sounds intriguing, I'll instantly be like... Babe, did you uh, record that? Are you recording this? And but so that's kind of cool, though. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's right? the little that I've read about Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings is like a similar thing where you like live with your editor. You live with the person that's kind of like able to sift through because it's easy for me to generate material. It's easy for me to kind of get into a, a, some kind of trance where I'm just spewing stuff or playing some kind of riff and, and making things up. But then to do that and also simultaneously be able to catch the stuff that's coming out is really difficult. It's like something that you can record a bunch of stuff and then go back another month later and try to listen to it. And like, it's a really difficult task. You're almost not able to do it yourself. So to have someone else that knows you inside and out and is so intimately involved in the music, be able to catch the stuff that's kind of flying out to help direct my energy... There's it's almost other, like you know. a, a built-in focus group. You guys know each other well. And it may not you may not always agree with it probably, right? Or I don't sure know. Do you always agree well, with it? Well, I think there are a lot of times where I'm like 
I don't even know what you're talking about. We've lost some of them. I'll hear such an amazing thing. And I'll wait, if I wait 30 seconds, a whole lot more has been spewing out. And so I'll like run over and be like, you got that thing. And he literally won't know. I'm like, that was the most beautiful, hookiest hit single riff I've ever, ever heard. And it's gone and he missed it. And he does, he'll like try to repeat and be like, no, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing because like <laughs> you like I heard something 30 seconds ago that was awesome and you're like I have no clue what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, some of it is that because he's already like been through. He's already like let you just so gotta you just gotta roll tape 24 seven. Which which you do sometimes. Sometimes yeah. if he's in that riffing mode, he will have a little voice memo and yeah. I can go back and find it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's good. No, but I like that element of the writing process is unique to you guys. Yeah, it is. That is unique. Not many yeah. people get to have that kind of editor standing right next to them and yeah. and hearing something that he's not going to hear. So we talked about how drums can kind of inspire you, but I also read that you. I mean, there's certainly some songs that you've written that you guys play that are just simple guitar or, or um, what's the other guitar like? That are really simple, nice kind of singer songwriter stuff, really beautiful stuff. But you also bring in different instruments. And you said that kind of helped you throw the rules out the window in the studio when you were writing. It's been a really helpful part of the process of having these very different Mexican instruments. I mean, that's kind of the starting point is those instruments. You know, there's going to be one way I'm going to play a song on a guitar that as soon as I pick up the harana, it's going to change. There's just a different way I play the instrument. It's just built a different way. So you've got to adapt very quickly. And then there are about three or four other different types of stringed instruments from Mexico that I'll play. And then there's all the different instruments that Suze plays that we can kind of start leaning towards one where you're like, kind of what's the f- base of the, the song instrumentation wise. Wait, uh, Harana, by the way, is that the sixth string? It's eight string. Oh, it's eight. A smaller body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot it's of like people a double ukulele think it's like almost. a ukulele. Yeah. All the tones are doubled and sometimes octave. But it's Tuning. not just two, 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 two. It's one... No. Two, 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 and one. Oh. So you do have to still it's do a little, some funky It's kind of things. like a baritone guitar, right? One, two, guitar, two, two, one? and one. I don't know. Uh-huh. And, the, and <laughs> those one, the ones on either side are the same. The highest and lowest string are either the same or octave. Okay. It's not mm-hmm. as easy as playing ukulele because that's only four strings. Mm-hmm. Or mandolin it's is a, eight, it's but it's an still ext- four. It's an extremely complicated, difficult instrument. I mean, God, just give me more <laughs> Compared to the, that little ukulele <laughs> that has just four strings. You play the fiddle. You play the... I picked up the accordion, accordion. since Cousin Jordan Wax left the band, since he's an incredible accordion player, and I felt like we were missing that sound. And what else you play? And played keys, some yeah. keyboard. And you play that... What's the, and the, what's jo- the, the, the donkey jawbone. So, uh, so I read your wiki, mm-hmm. and it actually mentions that as an mm. instrument that you play. Well, heck and yeah, come why wouldn't it? Well, it's just, I've never seen it listed on... It's on our CDs and stuff. I know, I mean, it, so it it's is. A, it's a percussion instrument. It is, but, you know, so are shakers and uh-huh, like... Uh-huh, I see. It's true. <laughs> you know I, what I mean? see what you mean. Totally. I mean, it's You're right. right. It's true. It just struck I, me. To your point, though, I don't take Where great artistic it? pride in playing this instrument. I mean, I taught myself. Do you have only one of them? <laughs> yeah, so. No, no, we have so many. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> These are real donkey bones. Yeah. They're not manufactured. They're real jawbones. They're real jawbones. Mm-hmm. Wow. So they all sound very different. And so who, it's nice to get a, a couple at a time to really see which ones are the best. But in ser- all seriousness, where, where does this come from? Is this Mexican? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. a traditional yeah. Mexican instrument. There's it's almost the, like a washboard in a sense. Yeah. So I mean, part that of concept, it, uh-huh. right? The way the sound is made is from hitting the side of the jaw, the lower jaw, and the teeth rattle because they're loose in their sockets. And then the washboard effect is with the stick running over the teeth. Oh, I'll do it. rattle. I didn't so it's a that. rattle plus the of the stick on the teeth. So it's two different sounds. When does the jawbone come into your brain and say, this needs jawbone? I mean, is Everything it in a lot of songs? Jawbone. I've got a fever. <laughs> and the owner prescription. 
It's more jawbone. Yeah. We use it, I feel like, more and more sparing these days because I feel like it's more helpful to have Sue's on accordion. Or melodic instrument. You know, to be doing something melodic. And we have a great drummer now that is covering a lot of the rhythmic patterns there. As a duo, it's just like a nice variation to be like, oh, there's all this information coming across rhythmically, melodically with the different instruments. Like if she's playing fiddle, for example, and then it's like just a nice change to switch to jawbone and harana and just yeah. really strip it down to just a rhythm instrument and a very simple percussion. Are you guys doing any festivals this year? We have built up this incredible seven-piece band now that we're playing with for when the time is right. But With horns, horn section. Oh, oh, right. Is this the first time you've had horns? Uh, no, we, but we kind of brought it back for the, our 10-year anniversary tour in September for our 1,000th show. We got the guys together again for this tour, and it was so exciting for us. I felt unstoppable. And so I feel like, oh, that's what I want to, I want to feel that way every time we play. Right now we're doing a duo tour. Yeah. I think we'll be doing a lot of that this year to pay for some new recording projects this year. So we're working on new records. And then hopefully whatever we record and however it gets released will happen probably in another year. Yeah. And then we'll be back out on the festival circuit. Well, cool. And tell us about the duo tour. So that's where we are right now. You guys are in New England. Well, we've been touring a lot as a four or five piece band over the past many years. Though before that, when we were sort of first starting to tour full-time we were doing a lot of duo shows but this year I just felt like the duo is so productive in fan building and putting some money in your pocket and with our two kids now there's something really simple about just having us show up yeah time to breathe it sounds like there's some yes real simplicity in that because paying for a band on the road is very expensive. And how many are you um, doing in, uh, of the duos? As this sort of idea of like going back to our roots, we're doing a bunch of house shows this week. And it's so, so much fun. I mean, yesterday we showed up. It's this beautiful space. Really warm people. They made this incredible meal. There's like a warm bed to put the baby in to sleep. It's so loving. People come up. They're so delighted to be there. They bought their ticket and none of that money goes to the venue. It yeah. all goes to the band and we're going to put it towards the next recording. It's such a simple, really part clean way. It and is. people are such community building. We just find one fan or friend and they'd be like, yeah, let's just get 30 people together at your house and do this. And it'll be a party afterward. We won't charge anything. We'll just pass a hat and we'll sell merch. And we just start, we would go there and we would play 10 shows in a row and stay at the Kelly's for 10 mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we paid for a lot of our early records was mm. those house shows. Should we give a shout out right now? Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> to Bill and Cindy Kelly. They yeah. right. deserve all yes. the shout outs. Yes, Chuck always says two them. degrees. My good friend John Churchill's uh, aunt and uncle. Or yeah. Aunt Cindy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Takes so a village. Of, yeah. We, I mean, it has in every every day of our life as musicians, it's been a ton of people that have supported us to make this possible. It's so unique to have awesome musicians sitting in someone's house and it's just comfortable and you've got the food and the drink. You get to meet the artist afterwards. And it's a very communal thing that they don't get to do anymore because they don't go out to shows anymore. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, and you get new fans there too. Yeah. The connection between anyway. musician and, and the audience it's is also. Yeah, it's very, so tangible. It's so Beautiful. different from being on stage. Yeah. And don't you guys go in the middle of the audience we've, or something? Yeah, we've all we've since the beginning we've loved as sort of just a way to shift the focus coming off stage and coming into the audience, and that's the been something we try to try to keep doing. They do that sometimes off mic and everything, but do uh-huh. you actually go into like a bigger crowd? Oh yeah, uh-huh. that's, that's Sinclair. We've cool. even done it. Yeah. In like the middle. middle, yeah. I can remember playing at shows at Johnny D's or even at Toad, and like people just talking. And so I was like, I'm just gonna get off the stage and walk over to them and just play right in front of them, you know. And like, I'm not, I'm, I'm passive aggressive enough that I'm not gonna say anything, but that's how I'm gonna kind of 
yeah. be like, I am playing here, you know, and, yeah. and if there's, you want to listen, you can. Yeah, there's and house you, concerts and then there's <laughs> private person <laughs> yeah. concerts. Yeah. And uh, there was this song that was an important song for us early on where it was based on this Mexican folk song called Carpenter Bird, uh, El Pajaro Carpintero, and you sing a verse and as soon as it's done, the next person starts right away. And so we started doing this thing where everybody in the band would sing a verse and we could spread out in a venue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and everybody would kind of have a moment where they're singing a verse and then you don't know where the next person's going to pop up and sing their verse. That's fun. I like that. We could like tell in the middle of a show, we're like, oh, we got to do Carpenter Bird now. We need to like engage yeah. people. We're so losing them. Back. Or yeah, we're back. like... Uh, we've been talking for Thanks. 62 minutes. How about yeah. that? Woo. Time and flies. We're just getting fun. started. We're just getting and no started. baby. I didn't hear and any no baby. baby. I heard a baby peep. Oh, well, she's but been listening like the whole That time. might have been Joe. When's, when is your next big show other than a house concert that people can come see you? We um, have been doing these shows in Charlottesville, where we live now, where we've been playing in these really interesting spaces that where the acoustics are beautiful and we can play unplugged and uh, we've been blindfolding the audience. The audience is blindfolded and kind of sitting in some interesting way and the two of us and some and other musician friends are kind of taking turns singing songs, sort of singing in the round, but then also joining each other and sort of harmonizing around you, in and around you, blindfolded. Oh, wait, for the like whole one night? song? Whole concert. For the whole concert. Whole concert. Oh, the whole concert. You are, have no sight. Does anybody take it off? Take the um, take them off? A little bit of peeking, but not much. People say it's this like it's like an introvert's dream because you can be at a live show and have live music, but you don't have to watch, be watched, and be seen. And this is fascinating. Uh, I, this is a whole uh-huh. podcast right here. Uh-huh. So that and is it's really, really cool. beautiful. It's a beautiful experience. It's so incredible as a musician because we get to play a live show to audience and no one's looking at you. It's <laughs> so really cool. deep experience for a lot of people. So people, when they go in, they know they're going to be blindfolded. This is yeah, like yeah, of course, yeah, that's of the whole deal. It's concert that's... in the blind. Right. When you buy your ticket, you know you're going to show up, be blindfolded, and you have an usher lead you. Your seat. We got to tell Sally Taylor about this. I don't know if I could do that. We got to tell Sally Taylor about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be very fascinating. So she she was one of our guests, and she's really cool. She's in Cambridge, and she's uh, she does something called consensus. It's consensus, as in S E N S E S. So the five senses. Mm-hmm. She does this thing where someone does a piece of art someone will look at that piece of artwork they'll uh, write a poem and then someone will look at the poem and then they'll create mm, a song like and, telephone uh, with art it, it's <gasps> exactly cool yeah, or they make food or perfume or but you're eliminating neat. a sense which is really yeah. wild and you're creating such an imagination with the music, which yeah. is just beautiful. I would love to hear people describe what they yeah. go through. That's what we did. We had people these. write. We we have quotes of people, and it's it's really it, what they visualize really, or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. They just the experience. We had people talk about the experience and write, yeah, well, write about it, and it was yeah. really. And so, when is this happening again? We'll be back in the Boston area in May with this. So tour. we're doing a tour with, tour with it. And where would you do it in Boston? Do you know, we we're still know figuring it Maybe out. Maybe a cool museum space or a, a chapel or something alternative. The MFA, they have music um, there all the time. Uh, it's called the Isabel Stewart yeah, Garden. Because yeah. yeah. it's really place. neat to actually enter the space, and then once the concert is over, the musicians leave, and then when you do remove the blindfold, it's it's neat to be in a place. You know, you don't know where you are, or what was around. They you. never even saw you guys the whole and time. And you got their wallets. Mm. <laughs> Wow. Great idea. <laughs> you should make That's Museum of Science would be record. cool too. Museum of Science? That's yeah. a cool idea. Mm-hmm. That's really wild. Yeah. Well, we got to check that out. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Cool. I'm glad you're into it. We are too. I know we're, we're wrapping yeah. up and we want to hear you guys play. Can you just play a couple songs for us? Sure. sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you very much for sitting with us. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank, Thank you, really you guys. It. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you right. time. Thanks, guys. Ready, guys? We're rolling. We're rolling. David
Lord is haunting you My love I see what is haunting you
Listen and purchase their music and see where David Wax Museum is playing near you. Visit davidwaxmuseum.com. We'd like to thank the hosts Patrick and Maeve who opened up their guest house to us, as well as thank David and Suze for the great conversation. Go to abovethebasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. Thank you.